Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 316 of Forgotten Classics. Back on track, after a weekend of insanity last time, so we didn't get any more Nellie Bly. But I'm making up for it this time with an extra long episode, so we catch up to where we would have been in our trip around the world in 72 days. I do not have a podcast highlight this week. I have not been listening to podcasts. I know. Is the world stopping? Are we all flying off as gravity quits? No, I have been listening to audiobooks. <laughs> I've been listening to some Georgette Hayer, and we know about her. But I also have just begun listening to Rumpel of the Bailey, read by Patrick Tull. And I have mentioned Patrick Tull to you before as reading the Master and Commander series. I guess this shows how much I love his reading. I wasn't really in the mood to continue with the Master and Commander series, but I really wanted some Patrick Tull, and I thought, well, I love the Rumpole books by John Mortimer, and oh my gosh, he does it better than anyone except Leo McKern, who played Rumpole on TV. And the interesting thing about these books is John Mortimer, of course, was a British barrister, but he actually wrote the TV shows first. And he wrote them for his friend, Leo McKern, who, of course, played Rumpel wonderfully. I'm just assuming everyone has seen the Rumpel show from the BBC. And if you haven't, you may just now stop what you're doing and go watch some of them. They are so good. They all, uh, of course, have a legal case. And usually there's much more to the case than Rumpel is presented with when he's given the initial details. But they also have the added depth of the office and the home life. And those provide opportunities for parallel things to be happening that shed light on each other along with the legal case. They're wonderfully constructed, very funny, and Rumpel is one of my favorite fictional characters. Like most people, I'd seen the TV show first. Then I discovered the books. I just assumed that it went the other way around. The books were written first and then picked up for TV. And as I've just told you, that isn't the case. But the books are so wonderfully written. The little details that can't be conveyed in TV are just great. And I think you would really like them if you want to listen to an audiobook. I can recommend nothing better than those. Now, he read a lot more of them than are available on Audible. And Audible has somebody else filling in the gaps of the ones that they either didn't want to transfer from audio cassette or pick up or buy or whatever. I've listened to the other people. <laughs> they just don't do the same thing as Patrick Tall. Yes, I told you, I'm addicted. But, you know, what are you going to do? Anyway... No matter who you choose, and there are two or three, I think, available for the first set of stories, definitely try them. They are just great. Now, back to our own just great story, who I cannot imagine anyone else reading to us than our sweet little LibriVox reader with the smile in her voice and the way she conveys the intelligence of Nellie Bly. I have to say, in the last episode... 
all I could think of was how grateful I am for air conditioning. Listening to her stories about being on that ship in those very hot conditions and with the clothing, even though it's lightened up, as she describes, the men in their white suits and she's wearing her silk uh, shirtwaist, no, that's not enough. And I also, because I'm an American and this is just how it goes, I kept thinking, oh, they probably didn't really have deodorant. Hope those sponge baths were refreshing. Oh, Um, it just sounded miserable. (laughs) And she wasn't making it sound great. You know, she was accepting the fact that it was a bit of suffering going along. I also liked when she was talking at the end about seeing the patriotic play that was being put on by the British people who so love their queen. And she wanted to stand up for her country, but she couldn't brag about her country's leaders. All she could do was think about how much she loved George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and how dissatisfied she was with the people now representing her. And I thought, wow, isn't that a familiar feeling? Depending on what kind of politics you favor, you probably go back and forth. But I'd say with our political situation right now with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump being the leaders of the parties in terms of one of them's going to be president. Wow. Yes, there are people who are diehard Trump fans. There are people who are diehard Hillary Clinton fans. And then there are a lot of people like me who are just caught between a rock and a hard place. Oh my goodness. So I guess that's what brought this fellow feeling out when she said that. Politics aside, I'm thoroughly enjoying Nellie Bly's adventures, and I hope you are too. Let's see what happens next. Let's dive in. Around the World in 72 Days by Nellie Bly Read by Mary Reagan Chapter 9 Delayed Five Days About nine o'clock in the morning, we anchored in the bay at Colombo, Ceylon. The island, with its abundance of green trees, was very restful and pleasing to our eyes after the spell of heat we had passed through on the ocean coming from Aden. Preparations had been made by the passengers before we anchored to go ashore, and as we came slowly into the small harbor where a number of vessels were lying, we all stood impatiently on deck, waiting for the first opportunity to desert the ship. With all our impatience, we could not fail to be impressed with the beauties of Colombo and the view from the deck of our incoming steamer. As we moved in among the beautiful ships laying at anchor, we could see the green island dotted with low, arcaded buildings which looked, in the glare of the sun, like marble palaces. In the rear of us was the blue, blue sea, jumping up into little hills that formed into snowdrifts which softly sank into the blue again. Forming the background to the town was a high mountain, which they told us was known as Adam's Peak. The beach, with a forest of tropical trees, looked as if it started in a point away out in the sea, curving around until near the harbor it formed into a blunt point, the line of which was carried out to sea by a magnificent breakwater surmounted by a lighthouse. Then the land curved back again to a point where stood a signal station, and on beyond a wide road ran along the water's edge until it was lost at the base of a high green eminence that stood well out over the sea, crowned with a castle-like building glistening in the sunlight. 
little boats filled with black men we could see coming out towards us from the shore, but my eyes were fastened on a strangely shaped object resting on the surface of the water in the bay. It seemed a living feathered thing of so strange a shape that I watched it with feelings akin to horror. What horrible feathered monster could that lovely island produce, I wondered, noticing with dismay that the ship was heading for it. Just as we were upon it, there was a flutter of wings, and a cloud of birds flew across and settled down upon the breakwater, where some fishermen, their feet overhanging the stony sides, were watching their lines. I looked back at what had raised so much consternation in my mind, and saw now that it was relieved of a feathered mass of birds, a harmless red boy. Accompanied by a friend, I was the first to step ashore. Some passengers who started in advance of us took a steam launch. My escort said that he would give me a novel experience, and also show me a small boat that traveled faster than a steam launch. The gentleman who had offered to be my escort during our jaunt on land was a traveler of vast experience. He has averaged a yearly tour of the world for several years, and knows the eastern countries as he knows his home. Still, when I saw the boat in which he intended to take me ashore, I rather doubted his judgment, but I said nothing. The boat was a rudely constructed thing. The boat proper was probably five feet in length and two feet in width across the top, narrowing down to the keel, so that it was not wide enough to allow one's feet to rest side by side in the bottom. There were two seats in the middle of the boat facing one another. They are shaded by a bit of coffee sack that must be removed to give room for passengers to get in. The two men sit at either end of this peculiar boat and with one paddle each. The paddle is a straight pole, with a board the shape and size of a cheese box head tied to the end of it, and with both these paddles on the same side they row us ashore. The boat is balanced by a log the length of the boat and fastened out by two curved poles, probably three feet from the boat. These boats are called by tourists outriggers, but are called by the people of Ceylon catamarans. With but slight exertion, the men sent the boat cutting through the water, and in a few moments we had distanced the steam launch and had accommodations engaged at the hotel before the launch had landed its passengers. It is said at Colombo that catamarans are used by the native fishermen who go out to sea in them, and that they are so seaworthy and so secure against capsizing that no case of an accident to a catamaran has ever been reported. A nearer view of the hotel, the Grand Oriental, did not tend to lessen its attractiveness. In fact, it increased it. It was a fine, large hotel with tiled arcades, corridors airy and comfortable, furnished with easy chairs and small marble-topped tables which stood close enough to the broad armrests for one to sip the cooling lime squashes or the exquisite native tea, or eat of the delicious fruit while resting in an attitude of ease and laziness. I found no place away from America where smoking was prohibited, and in this lovely promenade the men smoked, consumed gallons of whiskey and soda, and perused the newspapers, while the women read their novels or bargained with the pretty little copper-colored women who came to sell dainty handmade lace, or with the clever high-turbaned merchants who would snap open little velvet boxes and expose to the admiring gaze of the charmed tourists the most bewildering gems. There were deeply dark emeralds, firelit diamonds, exquisite pearls, rubies like pure drops of blood, the lucky cat's eye with its moving line, and all set in such beautiful shapes that even the men, who would begin by saying, I have been sold before by some of your kind, 
would end by laying down their cigars and papers and examining the glittering ornaments that tempt all alike. No woman who lands at Colombo ever leaves until she adds several rings to her jewel box, and these rings are so well known that at the moment a traveler sees one, no difference in what part of the globe, he says to the wearer inquiringly, "'Been to Colombo, eh?' For the first time since leaving America, I saw American money. It is very popular in Colombo, and commands a high price, as jewelry. It goes for nothing as money. When I offered it in payment for my bills, I was told it would be taken at 60% discount. The Colombo diamond merchants are very glad to get American $20 gold pieces and pay a high premium on them. The only use they make of the money is to put a ring through it and hang it on their watch chains for ornaments. The wealth of the merchant can be estimated by his watch chain, they tell me. The richer the merchant, the more American gold dangles from his chain. I saw some men with as many as twenty pieces on one chain. Most of the jewelry bought and sold in Colombo is sold in the corridor of the Grand Oriental Hotel. Merchants bring their wares with them, and tourists find it pleasanter than visiting the shops. Leading off from this corridor, pleasant in its coolness, interesting in its peculiarities, is the dining hall, matching the other parts of the hotel with its picturesque stateliness. The small tables are daintily set and are richly decorated daily with the native flowers of Colombo, rich in color, exquisite in form, but void of perfume. From the ceiling were suspended embroidered punkas, that invention of the East which brings comfort during the hottest part of the day. The punkas are long strips of cloth, fastened to bamboo poles that are suspended within a short distance of the tables. They are kept in motion by a rope pulley, worked by a man or boy. They send a lazy, cooling air through the building, contributing much to the ease and comfort of the guest. Punkas are also used on all the ships that travel in the east. Very good food was served at the hotel, which was all the more palatable to the passengers from the Victoria after the trials they had had for the past fortnight in eating the same kind of food under daily different names. Singalese waiters were employed, and they were not only an improvement on the English stewards, to whose carelessness and impudence we have been forced to submit, but they were very interesting to the Westerner. They managed to speak English very well and understood everything that was said to them. They are not unpleasing people, being small of stature and fine of feature, some of them having very attractive, clean-cut faces, light bronze in color. They wore white linen apron-like shirts and white jackets. Noiselessly they move over the smooth tile floor in their bare brown feet. Their straight black hair is worn long, twisted in a psyche knot at the back of the head. On the crown of the head, instead of circling it from ear to ear, is always set a tortoise-shell comb, like those worn by American school children. It was some time before I could tell a Singalese man from a Singalese woman. It is not difficult to distinguish the different sexes after one knows that the Singalese men wear the comb, which is a distinct feature of their dress, as is men's trousers in America. Singalese women would not think of donning this little comb any more than a sensitive American woman would think of wearing men's apparel. I did not hear the term waiter or garçon after leaving America. After leaving the English ships, I did not hear the word steward, but instead in the hotels and ships of the East, all the servants were called boy. We can call steward, waiter, garçon, until we are weary, without any result. But the moment we whisper, boy, a pleasant black fellow says, yes, sir, at our side, and is ready to do our bidding. 
At Tiffin I had some real curry, the famous native dish of India. I had been unable to eat it on the Victoria, but those who knew said it was a most delicious dish when prepared rightly, and so I tested it on shore. First a divided dish containing shrimps and boiled rice was placed before me. I put two spoonfuls of rice on my plate, and on it put one spoonful of shrimps. There was also chicken and beef for the meat part of the curry, but I took shrimps only. Then was handed me a much divided plate containing different preserved fruits, chudda, and other things hot with pepper. As instructed, I partook of three of this variety and put it on top of what had been placed first on my plate. Last came little dried pieces of stuff that we heard before we saw, its odor was so loud and unmistakable. They called it Bombay duck. It is nothing more or less than a small fish, which is split open, and after having been thoroughly dried, is used with the curry. One can learn to eat it. After all this is on the plate, it is thoroughly mixed, making a mess very unsightly, but very palatable, as I found. I became so given to curry that I only stopped eating it when I found, after a hearty meal, curry threatened to give me palpitation of the heart. A story is told concerning the Bombay duck that is very amusing. The Shah of Persia was notified that some high official in India intended to send him a lot of very fine Bombay duck. The Shah was very much pleased and, in anticipation of their arrival, had some expensive ponds built to put the Bombay ducks in. Imagine his consternation when he received those ill-smelling dried fish. After Tiffin, we drove to Mount Lavinia. We went along the smoothest, most perfectly made roads I ever saw. They seemed to be made of red asphalt, and I was afterwards told that they are constructed by convicts. Many of these roads were picturesque bowers, the overreaching branches of the trees that lined the waysides forming an arch of foliage above our heads, giving us charming telescopic views of people and conveyances along the road. Thatched huts of the natives and glimpses of the dwellers divided our attention with the people we passed on the road. Mount Lavinia we found to be the place we had noticed on entering the harbor. It is a fine hotel situated on an eminence overlooking the sea, and is a favorite resort during the hot seasons. It is surrounded by a smooth green lawn and faces the blue sea, whence it gets a refreshing breeze all the year through. After dinner, everybody at the Grand Oriental Hotel went out for a drive, the women and many of the men going bareheaded. Driving through the town, down the wide streets, past beautiful homes set well back in tropical gardens, to the gal-faced drive that runs along the beach just out of reach of the waves that break on the sandy banks with a more musical roar than I ever heard water produce before. The road lies very close to the water's edge, and by the soft rays of the moon its red surface was turned to silver. The deep blue of the sea was black, and the foamy breakers were snowdrifts. In the soft, pure light we would see silent couples strolling along, arm in arm, apparently so near the breakers that I felt apprehensive lest one, stronger than the others, should catch them unawares and wash them out to that unknown land where we all travel to rest." Lounging on the benches that faced the sea were occasional soldiers in the Queen's uniform, whom I looked at anxiously, unable to tell whether their attitude of weariness bespoke a rest from labor or hungry homesickness. One night I saw a native standing waist-deep fishing in the roaring breakers. They tell me that many of the fish bite more freely after night, but I thought how easily the fisherman might be washed away, and no one would be the wiser until his absence was noticed by his friends." 
Where the golf-face drive merges into another road stands the golf-face hotel, surrounded by a forest of palm trees. Lounging on long-bottomed easy chairs, on the stone-floored and stone-pillared veranda, one can see through the forest of tall palms where the ocean kisses the sandy beach, and while listening to the music of the wave, the deep, mellow roar can drift. Drift out on dreams that bring what life has failed to give, soothing pictures of the imagination that blot out for a moment the stern disappointment of reality. Or when the dreams fade away, one can drown the sigh with the cooling lime squash which the noiseless, barefooted living bronze has placed on the white armrest, at the same time lazily watching the gin rickshaws come silently through the gas-lit gate, the naked black runners coming to a sudden stop, letting the shafts drop so the passengers can step out. Lazily I sat there one sweet dusky night, only half hearing my escort's words that came to me mingled with the sound of the ocean. A couple stood close together, face bending over a face upturned, hand clasped in hand and held closely against a manly heart, standing two dark figures beneath an arch of the veranda, outlined against the gate lamp. I felt a little sympathy for them as wrapped in that delusion that makes life heaven or hell, that forms the foundation for every novel, play, or story. They stood until a noisy new arrival awakened her from blissful oblivion, and she rushed, scarcely waiting for him to kiss the hand he held, away into the darkness. I sighed again, and taking another sip of my lime squash, turned to answer my companion. Early next morning I was awakened by a Singalese waiter placing coffee and toast on a small table, which he drew up close to my curtained bed, after which he went out. I knew from the dim light that crept in through the open glass door which led to the balcony that it was still early, and I soon went off to sleep. I was awakened shortly by a rattling of the dishes on the table, and opening my eyes I saw, standing on the table, quietly enjoying my toast, a crow! I was not then used to having toast and tea before arising, as is the custom in Ceylon, so I let the crow satisfy his appetite, and leisurely take his departure without a protest. I arose earlier than was my habit, because I had a desire to see what there might be to see while I had the opportunity. After a cool, refreshing bath, I dressed hastily and went down below. I found almost all of my friends up, some having already started out to enjoy the early morning. I regretted my generosity to the crow when I learned that breakfast was never served until nine o'clock, and as everybody endeavored to have the benefit of the cool, sweet morning, toast and tea was very sustaining. In a light wagon we again drove down the Galface Road, and out past a lake in which men, women, children, oxes, horses, buffalo, and dogs were sporting. It was a strange sight. Off on a little green island we saw the laundry folk at work, beating, sousing, and wringing the clothes, which they afterwards spread upon the grass to dry. Almost all of the roads through which we drove were perfect, with their picturesque curves, and often bordered and arched with magnificent trees, many of which were burdened with beautiful, brilliant blossoms. Everybody seemed to be out. The white people were driving, riding, riding bicycles, or walking. The breakwater, which is a good half-mile in length, is a favorite promenade for the citizens of Colombo. Morning and evening, gaily-dressed people can be seen walking back and forth between the lighthouse and the shore. When the stormy season comes, the sea dashes full forty feet above this promenade, which must be cleansed of a green slime after the storms are over, before it can be traveled with safety. The Prince of Wales laid the first stone on this beautiful breakwater in 1875, 
and ten years later it was finished. It is considered one of the finest in existence. Colombo reminded me of Newport, Rhode Island. Possibly, in my eyes at least, Colombo is more beautiful. The homes may not be as expensive, but they are more artistic and picturesque. The roads are wide and perfect, the view of the sea is grand, and while unlike in its tropical aspect, still there is something about Colombo that recalls Newport. After breakfast, which usually leaves nothing to be desired, guests rest in the corridor of the hotel. The men who have business matters to attend to look after them and return to the hotel not later than eleven. About the hour of noon, everybody takes a rest, and after luncheon, they take a nap. While they sleep, the hottest part of the day passes, and at four they are again ready for a drive or a walk, from which they return after sunset in time to dress for dinner. After dinner, there are pleasant little rides in gin rickshaws or visits to the native theaters. I went one night to a Parsi theater. At the entrance were groups of people, some of whom were selling fruits, and some were gin rickshaw men waiting to haul the people home after the performance. There was no floor in the building. The chairs were placed in rows on the ground. The house was quite well filled with native men, women, and children who were deeply interested in the performance, which had begun before we reached there. The actors were all men. My escort had told me women never think of going on the stage in that country. The stage was not unlike any other stage, and the scenery, painted by native artists, was quite as good as is usually seen. On the left of the stage, close to the wing, was a man, sitting cross-legged on a raised platform, beating a tom-tom. A tom-tom was undoubtedly the mother to the drum. It is made on the same principle, but instead of being round, it is inclined to be long in shape. The player uses his hands instead of drumsticks, and when one becomes accustomed to it, I do not think the sound of the tom-tom can be called unmusical. The musician who presided over the tom-tom this night was dressed in a thin white material, and he wore a very large turban of the same stuff on his head. His copper-colored face was long and earnest, and he beat the tom-tom with a will that was simply amazing when one was informed that he had been constantly engaged at it since nine in the morning. If his hands did not tire, his legs did. Several times I saw him move, as if to find ease by shifting his squatting position, and every time I saw his bare feet turn up, in full view of the audience, I felt an irresistible desire to laugh. On the right, directly opposite to the tom-tom player, was a man whose duty it was to play a strange-looking organ. He only used one hand, the left, for playing, and with the right he held a book, which he steadily perused throughout the entire performance, reading and playing mechanically without once looking at the actors. The actors were amusing, at least. The story of the opera was not unlike those in other countries. The basis or plot of the play was a tale of love and tragedy. A tall young man, with his face painted a death-like white, sang shrilly through his very high-arched nose to another young man, dressed in the costume of a native woman. The latter was the lady and the heroine of the play, and he sang sharply through his nose like his or her lover. All the actors sang through their noses, and the thinner their voices and the more nasal sound they employed, the more the audience applauded. The heroine of the play was a maidservant employed by a very wealthy tea-planter, who was the father of the lover who sang through his nose. The lover, like all lovers, urged the girl to be his, in songs that were issued through his nose for fifteen minutes at a time. 
he, the heroine, would endeavor to look shy all through this insufferably long song of nasal sound, and then she would take up the same refrain, and to the same tune sing back at him for the same length, and after his own style, while he would hang his head and listen. Their gestures were very few, and they usually stood in one spot on the stage. Sometimes they would embrace, but only to fall apart and sing at each other again. The play goes on. A bold, bad robber, whose chalk-whitened face has a most Jewish cast, sees the maid-servant and falls in love with her. She repels his advances and goes into her master's house. Then the robber puts a cross on the house and vows that he will return with his men to kill the inhabitants, for the heroine, in her simplicity, confesses to the truth of his supposition that she loves another— and that other is her master's son. So the villain swears that he will return, kill the people of the house, and not only carry off the wealth, but the maid-servant as well. After the robber departs, the heroine comes out and spies the cross upon her house. With a crafty look upon her face, she picks up the chalk which the robber had dropped, and marks all the other houses in the street in just the same way so that when the robber returns he is foiled in his bold, bad game, for he cannot tell which house holds his charmer and her wealthy lover and master. He is a patient robber, and lies in wait until the lovers come forth to coo on the street. While they are busy making love through their noses, the man plays the organ with energy, the turbaned musician beats the tom-tom as if his life depended upon it, and the bold bad robber clutches at his stomach, twists his face into the most agonized expressions, and otherwise shows his agony to the audience. When they go into the house, he is about to follow, when the master appears, and, as he is going in, the robber approaches, and, saying that he is a wealthy tea merchant, begs to be permitted to rest at his house that night. The master most cordially consents, just as the heroine appears, and she, having heard the conversation, tells her master not to allow the man to stay. The master becomes very angry at her boldness, and promises her a liberal punishment, to take effect later in the day. The merchant begs to be permitted to have his cases of tea placed within the garden walls of his host, that the tea may be safe through the night. Of course the host consents, and the next scene shows the chests of tea in the garden, and the bold robber puts out the light at the door, and goes into the house to bide his time. Even that the heroine dreams, and, like other heroines, selects the cool, sweet night and the garden to dream in, she is surprised to find the garden in darkness, and lays her finger to the side of her nose when she sees the lamp is not burning. As she skips about, smelling the artificial flowers, the lid of the tea-chest is raised slightly, and a man sings something through his nose. She starts back in surprise— but instead of screaming, she answers the inquiry in nasal tones, and she learns that the chests are not filled with tea, but with men who belong to the robber, for whom they mistook her. When the man closes the lid again, to wait the bidding to come forth, she deftly locks all the cases, and then calls upon a manservant who helps her, the heroine, to carry these cases containing the men into a house in which they are securely locked. The next scene shows a room in which people are gathered and making merry. They are all sitting on the floor, and among them is the chief robber. The heroine and other maidservants are brought in to give a dagger dance. They have bracelets of bells around their wrists and ankles, and the dance is very pleasing. The heroine and another servant dance while battling with each other with their knives. 
Occasionally they break apart and encircle the room, and the heroine makes motions as if she intended to give the guests a playful thrust. She sees the robber slyly poison her master's wine, and so she dances around the robber's way, and sticks her dagger in his heart, and goes on with her dance. The guests laugh until they see the robber rise to his feet and fall dead. They see then the thrust was not playful but real, and the girl is caught, and the master says, She shall die. Then she screeches out the story of the men and the tea cases and tells about the poisoned wine, and the guests applaud her brave act, and she is told to ask for any favor she wishes. She asks for her master's son. She gets him to the music of the tom tom and the organ, and I suppose they live happily ever afterwards. I rode home from the theater in a bullock hackery. It was a very small, springless cart on two wheels with the front seat for the driver, and on the back seat, with our backs to the driver and our feet hanging over, we drove to the hotel. The bullock is a strange, modest-looking little animal with a hump on its back and crooked horns on its head. I feared that it could not carry us all, but it traveled at a very good pace. There was a sound of grunt, grunt, grunting that concerned me very much, until I found it was the driver, and not the bullock, that was responsible for the noise. With grunts, he urged the bullock to greater speed. The drive along tree-roofed roads was very quiet and lovely. The moonlight fell beautiful and soft over the land, and nothing disturbed the stillness except the sound of the sea, and an occasional soldier we met staggering along towards the barracks. At one place we saw a mosque with low, dim lamps hanging about. We went in and found the priests lying on the stone floor, some at the very foot of the altar. We talked with them in whispers, and then returned to the cart, which soon carried us back to the hotel. Just as we turned a corner to go to the hotel, an officer rushed up, and catching hold of a wheel, tried to stop the hackery, telling the driver that we were all under arrest. The candles in one of the lamps had burned out, and we were arrested for driving with a dark side. My companion made it right with the policeman, and we went to the hotel instead of the jail. Among the natives that haunt the hotel are the snake charmers. They are almost naked fellows, sometimes with ragged jackets on and sometimes turbans on their heads, but more often the head is bare. They execute a number of tricks in a very skillful manner. The most wonderful of these tricks to me was that of growing a tree. They would show a seed. Then they would place the seed on the ground, cover it with a handful of earth, and cover this little mound with a handkerchief, which they first passed around to be examined, that we might be positive there was nothing wrong with it. Over this they would chant, and after a time the handkerchief is taken off, and then up through the ground is a green sprout. We look at it incredulously, while the man says, tree no good, tree too small, and covering it up again, he renews his chanting. Once more he lifts the handkerchief, and we see the sprout is larger, but it still does not please the trickster, for he repeats, tree no good, tree too small, and covers it up again. This is repeated until he has a tree from three to five feet in height. Then he pulls it up, shows us the seed and roots. Although these men always asked us to see the snake dance, we always saw every other trick but the one that had caught us. 
One morning, when a man urged me to see the snake dance, I said that I would, but that I would pay to see the snake dance and for nothing else. Quite unwillingly, the men lifted the lid of the basket, and the cobra crawled slowly out, curling itself up on the ground. The charmer began to play on a little fife, meanwhile waving a red cloth which attracted the cobra's attention. It rose up steadily, darting angrily at the red cloth, and rose higher at every motion until it seemed to stand on the tip end of its tail. Then it saw the charmer, and it darted for him, but he cunningly caught it by the head, and with such a grip that I saw the blood gush from the snake's mouth. He worked for some time, still firmly holding the snake by the head before he could get it into the basket, the reptile meanwhile lashing the ground furiously with its tail. When at last it was covered from sight, I drew a long breath. And the charmer said to me sadly, Cobra no dance, Cobra too young, Cobra too fresh. I thought quite right, the Cobra was too fresh. At Colombo I saw the gin rickshaw for the first time. The gin rickshaw is a small two-wheeled wagon, much in shape like a sulky, except that it has a top which can be raised in rainy weather. It has long shafts joined at the end with a crossbar. The jinrikshaw men are black and wear little else than a sash. When the sun is hot, they wear large hats that look like enormous mushrooms, but most of the time these hats are hanging to the back of the rickshaw. There are stands at different places for these men, as well as carriage stands. While waiting for patrons, they let the rickshaws rest on the shafts, and they sit in the bottom, their feet on the ground. Besides dressing in a sash, these men dress in an oil or grease, and when the day is hot and they run— one wishes they wore more clothing and less oil. The grease has an original odor that is entirely its own. One day I was going out in a rickshaw, and an acquaintance was going with me. The man put his foot on the shaft when I got in, and as he raised it, ready to start, I saw my friend step into her rickshaw. She sat down and instantly went out, the other way. The man did not have his foot on the shaft, and she overbalanced. I had a shamed feeling about going around the town drawn by a man, but after I had gone a short way, I decided it was a great improvement on modern means of travel. It was so comforting to have a horse that was able to take care of itself. When we went into the shops, it was so agreeable not to have the worry of fearing the horses were not blanketed, and when we made them run, we did not have to fear we might urge them into a damaging speed. It is a great relief to have a horse whose tongue can protest." I have spoken about the perfect roads in Ceylon. I found the roads in the same state of perfection in almost all the eastern ports at which I stopped. I could not decide, to my own satisfaction, whether the smoothness of the road was due to the entire and blessed absence of beer wagons, or to the absence of the New York street commissioners. I visited at the temples in Colombo, finding little of interest, and always having to pay liberally for the privilege of looking about. One day I went to the Buddhist college, and while there I met the famous high priest of Ceylon. He was sitting on a veranda that surrounded his low bungalow, writing on a table placed before him. His gown consisted of a straight piece of old gold silk, wrapped deftly around the body and over the waist. The silk had fallen to his waist, but after he greeted us he pulled it up around his shoulders. He was a copper-colored old fellow, with gray hair that was shaved very close to the head. He spoke English quite well, and among other things told me he received hundreds of letters from the United States every year, and that they found more converts to the Buddhist religion in America than in any other land. 
The two newspapers in Colombo are in charge of two young Englishmen who are very clever. They are very kind to strangers, and I am indebted to them for a great deal of pleasure during my stay in Ceylon. The hotel manager is a German of high birth. He is untiring in his efforts to make his guests comfortable. His wife is a very pretty, petite little woman, with a beautiful voice. Through her kindness I learned of a tailor in Ceylon who makes gowns that, for style and fit, are not excelled. I have seen gowns from Worth that could not equal them, and this man charges for making a gown five rupees. Five rupees are about two dollars and a half. He will make a gown in two days. The praises of Candy had been sung to me, so one morning at seven o'clock I started for Candy with the Spanish representative, who was going to Peking, and a jolly Irish lad who was bound for Hong Kong, both of whom had traveled with me from Brindisi. We drove to the station and were passed with people through the gate to the train. English cars, and ones that leave everything to be desired, are used on this line. We got into a compartment where there was but one seat, which, luckily for us, happened to be facing the way we traveled. Our tickets were taken at the station, and then the doors were locked and the train started. Before the start, we had entered our names in a book, which a guard brought to us with the information that we could have breakfast on the train if so desired. As it was too early for breakfast at the hotel, we were only too glad to get an opportunity to eat. At eight o'clock, the train stopped, and the guard unlocked our door, telling us to go front to the dining car. It seemed strange to be compelled to get out of a train instead of walking through it in order to get to the other end of it. The dining car was fitted up with stationary tables, which almost spanned the car, leaving a small space for people to walk along. There were more people than could be accommodated, but as the train had started, they were obliged to stand. Several persons had told me that the breakfast served on this train was considered remarkably good. I thought on seeing the bill of fare they had prepared a feast for a chicken hawk. First, there was fish dressed in vinegar and onions, followed by chicken soup, chicken aspic, grilled chicken, boned chicken, fried chicken, boiled chicken, cold chicken, and chicken pie. After we had finished our breakfast, we were compelled to remain where we were until the train arrived at some station. Then the dining car was unlocked, and we returned to the other car, again being locked in until the end of the journey. The road to Candy is spoken of as being very beautiful. It winds up the mountainside and is rather pretty, but nothing wonderful in that respect. It is a tropical land, but the foliage and the flowers are very ordinary. About the prettiest things to be seen are the rice beds. They are built in terraces, and when one looks down into the deep valley, seeing terrace after terrace of the softest, lightest green, one is forced to cry. How beautiful! Arriving at Candy at last, we hired a carriage and went to see the lake, the public library, and the temples. In one old temple, surrounded by a moat, we saw several altars of little consequence, and a bit of ivory which they told us was the tooth of Buddha. Candy is pretty, but far from what it is claimed to be. They said it was cool, but we found it so hot that we thought with regret of Colombo. Disgusted with all we found worth seeing, we drove to Parathenia to see the great botanical garden. It well repaid us for the visit. That evening we returned to Colombo. I was tired and hungry, and the extreme heat had given me a sick headache. On the way down, the Spanish gentleman endeavored to keep our falling spirits up, but every word he said only helped to increase my bad temper, much to the amusement of the Irish boy. He was very polite and kind, the Spaniard, I mean, but he had an unhappy way of flatly contradicting one that, to say the least, 
was very exasperating. It was to me, but it only made the Irish boy laugh. When we were going down the mountainside, the Spaniard got up and, standing, put his head through the open window in the door to get a view of the country. "'We are going over,' he said, with positive conviction, turning around to us. I was leaning up in a corner, trying to sleep, and the Irish boy, with his feet braced against the end of our compartment, was trying to do the same. "'We won't go over,' I managed to say, while the Irish boy smiled. "'Yes, we will!' the Spaniard shouted back. "'Make your prayers!' The Irish boy screamed with laughter, and I forgot my sickness as I held my sides and laughed. It was a little thing, but it is often little things that raise the loudest laughs. After that, all I needed to say to upset the dignity of the Irish boy was, Make your prayers! I went to bed that night too ill to eat my dinner. The next morning I had intended to go to the pearl market, but felt unequal to it. And when my acquaintances returned and told me that at the very end of the sale a man bought some leftover oysters for one rupee and found in them five hundred dollars worth of pearls, I felt sorry I had not gone, although there was great danger of getting cholera. One day I heard a man ask another if he knew the meaning of the word jinriksha. The first replied the word meant draw man power, and the second said with innocent surprise, I thought it was pull man car. I heard a passenger who came ashore from an Australian boat ask Andrew, a clever native who stands at the hotel door, to get him one of those carts to take a ride. Andrew did not know just what the man wanted, as there were many different kinds of cart about. "'I don't recall the name of them,' the passenger said in a hesitating manner. "'But I believe you call them jim-jams.' He got a jinrickshaw. Chapter 10. In the Pirate Seas One night, after I had been five days in Colombo, the blackboard in the hotel corridor bore the information that the Oriental would sail for China the following morning at eight o'clock. I was called at five o'clock, and some time afterwards left for the ship. The Spanish minister, as we called the Spaniard, wanted me to go to some of the shops with him until he should buy some jewelry, but I was so nervous and anxious to be on my way that I could not wait a moment longer than was necessary to reach the boat that was to carry me to China. When farewells had been said, and I was on the Oriental, I found my patience had given way under the long delay. The ship seemed to be deserted when I went on deck with the exception of a handsome elderly man, accompanied by a young blond man in a natty white linen suit, who slowly promenaded the deck, while watching out to sea while they talked. I was trying to untie my steamer chair so as to have some place to sit, when the elderly man came up and politely offered to assist me. "'When will we sail?' I asked shortly. "'As soon as the Nepal comes in,' the man replied. "'She was to have been here at daybreak, but she hasn't been sighted yet.' "'Waiting for the Nepal has given us this five days' delay. "'She's a slow old boat.' "'May she go to the bottom of the bay when she does get in,' I said savagely. "'The old tub! "'I think it an outrage to be kept waiting five days for a tub like that.' "'Colombo is a pleasant place to stay,' the elderly man said with a twinkle in his eye. "'It may be if staying there does not mean more than life to one.' "'Really, it would afford me the most intense delight "'to see the Nepal go to the bottom of the sea.' "'Evidently my ill-humour surprised them, "'and their surprise amused me, "'for I thought how little anyone could realise "'what this delay meant to me, 
and the mental picture of a forlorn little self creeping back to New York ten days behind time, with a shamed look on her face and afraid to hear her name spoken, made me laugh outright. They gazed at me in astonishment while I laughed immoderately at my own unenviable position. My better nature surged up with the laugh, and I was able to say once again, "'Everything happens for the best.' "'There is the Nepal,' I said, pointing out a line of smoke just visible above the horizon. They doubted it, but a few moments proved that I was correct. "'I am very ill-natured,' I said, glancing from the kindly blue eyes of the elderly man to the laughing blue eyes of the younger man. But I could not help it. After being delayed for five days, I was called at five o'clock, because they said the ship was to sail at eight, and here it is nine o'clock, and there's no sign of the ship sailing, and I am simply famished.' As they laughed at my woes, the gong sounded for breakfast, and they took me down. The Irish lad with his sparkling eyes and jolly laugh was there, as was a young Englishman who had also traveled on the ship Victoria to Colombo. I knew him by sight, but as he was a sworn woman-hater, I did not dare to speak to him. There were no women on board. I was the only woman that morning, and a right jolly breakfast we had. The captain, a most handsome man, and as polite and as courteous as he was good-looking, sat at the head of the table. Officers that any ship might boast of were gathered about him. Handsome, good-natured, intelligent, polite they were, every single one of them. I found the elderly man I had been talking to was the chief engineer, and the young man was the ship's doctor. The dining-hall was very artistic and pleasant, and the food was good. The ship, although much smaller than the Victoria, was very much better in every way. The cabins were more comfortable, the ship was better ventilated, the food was vastly superior, the officers were polite and good-natured, the captain was a gentleman in looks and manners, and everything was just as agreeable as it could be. For several days I let things go on and said nothing about myself, nor did I give them the letter which the London agent had kindly sent. It had brought me no attention or courtesy on the Victoria, and I decided to take my chances on the Oriental. When I saw that uniform kindness and politeness was the rule on this ship, I then gave them the letter, and though the captain was pleased to receive it, still it could not have made his treatment of me any kinder than it was at first. It was well on to one o'clock before the passengers were transferred from the Nepal to the Oriental. In the meantime the ship was amply peopled with merchants from the shore, who were selling jewels and lace. How they did cheat the passengers! They would ask and sometimes get fabulous prices for things, and when the ship was ready to sail, they offered to sell at any price. They were quite saucy chaps, too. I heard a vendor reply to a man who offered him a small price for some so-called precious stones. I am not charging you for looking at these. In fact, they grew so impudent and bold that I am surprised that the steamship lines do not issue orders prohibiting their presence on board. At one o'clock we sailed. The first day and the two days following were passed lazily on deck. I found it a great relief to be again on the sweet blue sea, out of sight of land, and free from the tussle and worry and bustle for life which we are daily, hourly even, forced to gaze upon on land. Although the East is, in a very great measure, free from the dreadful crowding for life, still one is bound to see signs of it even among the most indolent of people. 
only on the bounding blue the grand great sea is one rocked into a peaceful rest at noon of day at dusk of night feeling that one is drifting drifting not seeing or knowing or caring about fool mortals striving for life true the sailors do this and that but it has an air far from that of elbowing each other for a living to the lazy passengers it seems that they merely hoist a sail or pull it down that they may drift dream sleep talk live for happiness and not for gain the fourth day out was sunday the afternoon was spent on deck looking at the most beautiful green islands which we slowly passed sometimes we would lazily conjecture as to whether they were inhabited or not the next day we anchored at penang or prince of wales island one of the straits settlements as the ship had such a long delay at colombo it was said that we would have but six hours to spend on shore with an acquaintance as an escort i made my preparations and was ready to go land the moment we anchored we went ashore in a sampan an oddly shaped flat boat with the oars or rather paddles fastened near the stern the malay oarsman rowed hand over hand standing upright in the stern his back turned towards us as well as the way we were going frequently he turned his head to see if the way was clear plying his oars industriously all the while once landed he chased us to the end of the pier demanding more money although we had paid him thirty cents just twenty cents over and above the legal fare hiring a carriage we drove to where a waterfall comes bounding down the side of a naturally verdant mountain which had been transformed halfway up into a pleasing tropical garden the picturesque waterfall is nothing marvelous it only made me wonder from whence it procured its water supply but after walking until i was much heated and finding myself apparently just as far from the fount i concluded the waterfall secret was not worth the fatigue it would cost on the way to the town we visited a hindu temple scarcely had we entered when a number of half-clad barefooted priests rushed frantically upon us demanding that we remove our shoes the temple being built open its curved roof and rafters had long been utilized by birds and pigeons as a bedroom doubtless ages had passed over the stone floor but i could swear nothing else had so i refused emphatically and unconditionally to unboot myself i saw enough of their idols to satisfy me one was a black god in a gay dress the other was a shapeless black stone hung with garlands of flowers the filthy stone at its base being buried neath a profusion of rich blossoms English is spoken less in Penang than any port I visited. A native photographer, when I questioned him about it, said, The Malays are proud, miss. They have a language of their own, and they are too proud to speak any other. That photographer knew how to use his English to advantage. He showed me cabinet-sized proofs for which he asked one dollar each. One dollar! I exclaimed in astonishment. That is very high for a proof. If Miss thinks it is too much, she does not need to buy. She is the best judge of how much she can afford to spend, he replied with cool impudence. Why are they so expensive? I asked, nothing daunted by his impertinence. I presume because Penang is so far from England, he rejoined carelessly. I was told afterwards that a passenger from the Oriental pulled the photographer's long, thin black nose for his impudence, and I was pleased to hear it. A Chinese joss house, the first I had seen, was very interesting. The pink and white roof, curved like a canoe, was ornamented with animals of the dragon tribe, with their mouths open and their tails in the air. The straggling worshippers could be plainly seen from the streets through the arcade sides of the temple. 
Chinese lanterns and gilt ornaments made gay the dark interior. Little josses, with usual rations of rice, roast pig, and smoldering joss sticks, dispersing a strangely sweet perfume, were no more interesting than a dark corner in which the superstitious were trying their luck, a larger crowd of dusky people than were about the altars. In fact, the only devotee was a wax-haired Chinese woman, with a slit-eyed brown babe tied on her back, bowing meekly and lowly before a painted bejangled joss. Some priests with shaven heads and old gold silk ornaments, who were in a summer-house in the garden, saw us when we were looking at the goldfish ponds. One came forth, and, taking me by the hand, gracefully led me to where they were gathered. They indicated their wish that we would sit with them and drink tea with them, milkless and sugarless, from childlike china cups, which they refilled so often that I had reasons for feeling thankful the cups were so like unto play dishes. We were unable to exchange words, but we smiled liberal smiles at one another. Mexican silver is used almost exclusively in Penang. American silver will be accepted at the same value, but American gold is refused, and paper money is looked on with contempt. The Chinese jinrikshamen in Penang, compared with those in Colombo, are like overfed pet horses, beside racers in the trim. They were the plumpest Chinamen I ever saw, such round fat legs and arms. When we started back to the ship, the bay was very rough. Huge waves angrily tossed our small boat about, in a way that blotted the red from my escort's cheeks, and caused him to hang his head in a care-for-nothing way over the boat's side. I could not help likening the sea to a coquette, so indifferent and heedless is it to the strange emotions it raises in the breast of man. It was a reckless spring that landed us on a ship's ladder, the rolling of the coal-barge helping to increase the swell which had threatened to engulf us. Hardly had we reached deck when the barge was ordered to cut loose. Even as this was being done, the ship hoisted anchor and started on its way. Almost immediately there was a great commotion on board. About fifty ragged black men rushed frantically on deck to find that while depositing their last sacks of coal in the regions below, their barge and companions had cast off and were rapidly nearing the shore. Then followed dire chattering, wringing of hands, pulling of locks, and crying after the receding barge— all to no avail. The tide was coming in, a very strong tide it was, too, and despite the efforts of those on it, the barge was steadily swept inland. The captain appeased the coolies' fears by stating they should go off in the pilot's boat. We all gathered to see the sight, and a funny one it was. The tug being lashed to the ship, they first tried to take the men off without slowing down, but after one man got a dangerous plunge bath and the sea threatened to bury the tug, then the ship was forced to slow down. Some coolies slid down a cable, the comrades grabbing and pulling them wet and frightened white onto the tug. Others went down the ladder, which lacked five feet of touching the pilot boat. Those already on board would clutch the hanging man's bare legs, he meanwhile clinging despairingly to the ladder, fearing to loosen his grasp, and only doing so when the ship's officers would threaten to knock him off. The pilot, a native, was the last to go down. Then the cable was cast off, and we sailed away, seeing the tug, so overloaded that the men were afraid to move even to bail it out, swept back by the tide towards the place where we had last seen the land. I had a cabin down below at first, and I found little rest owing to the close proximity of a nurse and two children, whose wise parents selected a cabin on the other side of the ship. They could rest in peace." After I had been awakened several mornings at daybreak by the squabbling of the children, I cherished a grudge against the parents. The mother made some show of being a beauty, 
she had a fine nose, everybody confessed that, and she had reduced her husband to such a state of servitude and subjection that she needed no maids. I have always confessed that I like to sleep in the morning as well as I like to stay up at night, and to have my sleep disturbed makes me as ill-natured as a bad dinner makes a man. The fond father of these children had a habit of coming over early in the morning to see his cherubs before he went to his bath. I know this from hearing him tell them so. He would open their cabin door, and in the loudest, coldest, most unsympathetic voice in the world, would thoroughly arouse me from my slumbers by screaming, "'Good morning! How is Papa's family this morning?' A confused conglomeration of voices sounded in reply. Then he would shout, "'What does baby say to Mama? Say, what does baby say to Mama?' "'Mama!' baby would at length shout back in a coarse, unnatural baby voice. "'What does baby say to papa? Tell me, baby, what does baby say to papa?' "'Papa!' would answer back the shrill treble. "'What does the moo-moo cow say, my treasure? Tell papa what the moo-moo cow says!' To this the baby would make no reply, and again he would shout, "'What does the moo-moo cow say, darling? Tell papa what the moo-moo cow says!' If it had been once or twice even. I might have endured it with civilized forbearance, but after it had been repeated the very same identical word every morning for six long, weary mornings, my temper gave way. And when he said, "'Tell Papa what the moo-moo cow says,' I shouted frantically, "'For heaven's sake, baby, tell Papa what the moo-moo cow says and let me go to sleep!' A heavy silence, a silence that was heavy with indignation and surprise, followed, and I went off to sleep to dream of being chased down a muddy hill by babies sitting astride cows with crumpled horns and straight horns and no horns at all, all singing in a melodious cow-like voice, moo, moo, moo. The fond parents did not speak to me after that. They gazed on me in disdain, and when the woman got seasick, I persuaded an acquaintance of hers to go in and see her one day by telling her it was her Christian duty. The fond mother would not allow the ship doctor to see her, although her husband had to relate her ills to the doctor, and in that way get him to prescribe for them. I knew there was something she wished to keep secret. The woman, true to my counsel, knocked on the door. Hearing no voice and thinking it lost in the roar of the ocean, opened the door. The fond mother looked up, saw, and, screaming, buried her face in the pillows. She was toothless and hairless. The frightened Samaritan did not wait to see if she had a cork limb. I felt repentant afterwards, and went to a deck cabin where I soon forgot the moo-moo cow and the fond parents, but the woman's fame as a beauty was irrevocably ruined on the ship. It was so damply warm in the Straits of Malacca that for the first time during my trip I confessed myself uncomfortably hot— it was sultry and foggy and so damp that everything rusted, even the keys in one's pockets, and the mirrors were so sweaty that they ceased to reflect. The second day out from Penang we passed beautiful green islands. There were many stories told about the straits being once infested with pirates, and I regretted to hear that they had ceased to exist. I so longed for some new experience. We expected to reach Singapore that night. I was anxious that we should, for the sooner we got in, the sooner we should leave, and every hour lost meant so much to me. 
The pilot came on at six o'clock. I waited tremblingly for his verdict. A wave of despair swept over me when I heard that we should anchor outside until morning, because it was too dangerous to try and make the port after dark. And this was the result of slowing down to leave off the coolies at Penang. The mail contract made it compulsory for the ship to stay in port twenty-four hours, and while we might have been consuming our stay and so helping me on in my race against time, I was wasting precious hours lying outside the gates of hope, as it were, merely because some black men had been too slow. Those few hours might mean time loss of my ship at Hong Kong. They might mean days to my record. What agony of suspense and impatience I suffered that night! When I came on deck the next morning, the ship lay alongside the wharf, and naked Chinese coolies carrying, two by two, baskets of coal suspended between them on the pole, were constantly traversing the gangplank between the ship and shore, while in little boats about were peddlers with silks, photographs, fruits, laces, and monkeys to sell. The doctor, a young Welshman, and I hired a gharry, a light wagon with latticed windows and comfortable seating room for four with the driver's seat on the same level outside. They are drawn by a pretty spotted Malay pony whose speed is marvelous compared with its diminutive size, and whose endurance is of such quality that the law confines their working hours to a certain limit. Driving along a road as smooth as a ballroom floor, shaded by large trees, made picturesque by native houses built on pins in marshy land on either side, which tended to dampen our surprise at the great number of graveyards and the generous way in which they were filled, we drove to the town. The graves were odd, being round mounds with walls shaped like horseshoes. A flat stone where the mound ends and the wall begins bears the inscriptions done in colored letters. There are no sidewalks in Singapore, and blue and white in the painting of the houses largely predominate over the other colors. Families seem to occupy the second story, the lower being generally devoted to business purposes. Through latticed windows, we got occasional glimpses of peeping Chinese women in gay gowns, Chinese babies bundled in shapeless wadded garments, while down below, through widely open fronts, we could see the people pursuing their trades. Barbering is the principal trade. A chair, a comb, a basin, and a knife are all the tools a man needs to open shop, and he finds as many patrons if he sets up shop in the open street as he would under a shelter. Sitting doubled over, Chinamen have their heads shaven back almost to the crown, when a spot about the size of a tiny saucer is left to bear the crop of hair which forms the pigtail. When braided and finished with a silk tassel, the Chinaman's hair is done for the next fortnight. The people here, as at other ports where I stopped, constantly chew betel nut, and when they laugh, one would suppose they had been drinking blood. The betel nut stains their teeth and mouthfuls blood red. Many of the natives also fancy tinting their fingernails with it. Nothing is patronized more than the rickshaws in Singapore, and while they are to be had for ten cents an hour, it is no unusual sight to see four persons piled in one gin rickshaw and drawn by one man. We visited a most interesting museum and saw along the suburban roads the beautiful bungalows of the European citizens. People in dog carts and wheelmen on bicycles crowded the splendid drives. We found the monkey cage, of course. There was beside a number of small monkeys, one enormous orangutan. It was as large as a man and was covered with long red hair. While seeming to be very clever, he had a way of gazing off in the distance with wide and seeing eyes, meanwhile pulling his long red hair up over his head in an aimless, insane way that was very fetching. The doctor wanted to give him a nut, but feared to put his hand through the bars.' 
The grating was too small for the old fellow to get his hand through, but he did not intend to be cheated of his rights, so he merely stuck his lips through the gratings until they extended fully four inches. I burst into laughter at the comical sight. I had heard of mouths, but that beat anything I ever saw, and I laughed until the old fellow actually smiled in sympathy. He got the nut. The doctor offered him a cigar. He did not take it, but touched it with the back of his hand, afterwards smelling his hand, and then subsided into that dreamy state, aimlessly pulling his hair up over the back of his head. At the cable office, in the second story of a building, I found the agents conversant with the English language. They would accept American silver at par, but they did not care to handle our other money. The bank and post office are open places on the ground floor with about as much comfort and style as is found in, in ordinary wharf warehouses. Chinese and English are employed in both places. We had dinner at the Hotel de l'Europe, a long, low, white building set back in a wide green lawn, with a beautiful esplanade faced by the sea, fronting upon it. Upon the veranda were long white tables where a fine dinner was served by Chinamen. On our return from the governor's house, I heard a strange, weird din as of many instruments in dire confusion and discord, very like in sound to a political procession the night after the, the presidential election. "'That's a funeral,' my melee driver announced. "'Indeed. If that is the way you have funerals here, I'll see one,' I said. So he pulled the gary to one side, where we waited eagerly for the funeral that was heralded by a blast of trumpets.' First came a number of Chinamen with black and white satin flags, which, being flourished energetically, resulted in clearing the road of vehicles and pedestrians. They were followed by musicians on melee ponies, blowing fifes, striking cymbals, beating tom-toms, hammering gongs, and pounding long pieces of iron, with all their might and main. Men followed carrying on long poles roast pigs and Chinese lanterns, great and small, while in their rear came banner-bearers. The men on foot wore white trousers and sandals with blue top dress, while the pallbearers wore black garments bound with blue braid. There were probably forty pallbearers. The casket, which rested on long poles suspended on the shoulders of the men, was hidden beneath a white-spotted scarlet cloth with decorations of Chinese lanterns or inflated bladders on arches above it. The mourners followed in a long string of garries. They were dressed in white satin from head to toe, and were the happiest-looking people at the funeral. We watched until the din died away in the distance, when we returned to town as delighted as if we had seen a circus parade. "'I would not have missed that for anything,' Dr. Brown said to me. "'You could not,' I replied laughingly. "'I know they got it up for our special benefit.' And so laughing and jesting about what to us had had no suggestion of death, we drove back to see the temples.' None of us were allowed to pass beneath the gates of the Mohammedan temple, so we went on to a Hindu temple. It was a low stone building enclosed by a high wall. At the gateway leading to it were a superfluity of beggars, large and small, lame and blind, who asked for alms, touching their foreheads respectfully. The temple was closed, but some priests rushed forth to warn us not to step on the sacred old dirty stone passage leading to it with our shoes on. Its filth would have made it sacred to me with my shoes off. My comrades were told that removing their shoes would give them admission, but I should be denied that privilege because I was a woman. Why? I demanded, curious to know why my sex in a heathen land should exclude me from a temple, as in America it confines me to the side entrances of hotels and other strange and incommodious things. No, senora, no mutter, 
the priest said with a positive shake of the head. "'I'm not a mother!' I cried so indignantly that my companions burst into laughter, which I joined after a while, but my denials had no effect on the priest. He would not allow me to enter. In some sheds which lined the inner part of the high wall we saw a number of fantastically shaped carts of heavy build. Probably they were juggernauts. Nearby we saw through the bars a wooden image of a woman. Her shape was neither fairy-like nor girlish. Her features were fiendish in expression, and from her mouth fell a long string of beads. As the mother of a poor man's family she would have been a great success. Instead of one pair of arms she had four. One pair was employed in holding a stiff wooden baby before her, and the other three pairs were taking care of themselves, much like the legs of a crab. They showed us a white wooden horse mounted on wheels, images of most horrible devils. In short, we saw so many images of such horrible shapes that it would be impossible to recall them all. I remember one head that I was very much interested in, and the limited English of the priest failed to satisfy my curiosity as to who, what, and for what purpose the thing was invented. It was only a head, but it must have been fully twelve feet high and wide in proportion. The face was a fiery scarlet, and the eyes were tightly closed. On the lawn, fastened to a slight pin, was a white cow, the only presentable cow I saw during my trip. I noticed the doctor gave her wide range in keeping his eye on her as she playfully tossed her head. "'Be careful,' he said nervously to me. "'I believe that's the sacred white cow.' "'She looks old enough and tough enough to make her sacred in the eye of a butcher,' I replied. "'If she is the sacred cow,' he continued, despite my levity, "'and went for us, they would consider it their duty to let the old beast kill an infidel. "'That pen does not look very strong.' So, to quiet the fears of the doctor, we left the old cow and the gods behind. The people in Singapore have ranks, as have people in other lands. There they do not wait for one neighbor to tell another, or for the newspapers to inform the public as to their standing, but every man, woman, and child carries his mark in gray powder on the forehead, so that all the world may look and read and know his caste. We stopped at the driver's humble home on our way to the ship, and I saw there on the ground floor his pretty little melee wife, dressed in one wrapping of linen, and several little brown naked babies. The wife had a large gold ring in her nose, rings on her toes, and several around the rim of her ears, and gold ornaments on her ankles. At the door of their house was a monkey. I did resist the temptation to buy a boy at Port Said, and also smothered the desire to buy a Singalese girl at Colombo. "'but when I saw the monkey my will-power melted "'and I began straight away to bargain for it. "'I got it. "'Will the monkey bite?' I asked the driver, "'and he took it by the throat, "'holding it up for me to admire as he replied, "'Monkey no bite?' "'But he could not under the circumstances. 